If you enjoy our videos and podcasts and would like us to continue putting out regular quality content, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview where you can donate monthly and in return you will get rewards ranging from early interview viewings, bonus clips, credited as a producer and much more. Thank you and enjoy. How did the Pakistan Air Force acquire the F-16 and how did you uh, get to fly it? So tell us your story on the F-16. I was in uh, Mirages at the time. This was 1985. We got them in 1983, the F-16s. And uh, I went over from the Mirages uh, to fly the F-16. The things that struck us, you know, because we'd been flying Everyone in the Air Force had been flying conventional fighters, and conventional means everything that on the F-16 was unconventional. Starting with the seat, you know, it's 30 degrees reclined. The stick movement was one sixteenth of an inch in each axis. I mean, you move it forward, it goes one sixteenth of an inch and one sixteenth back. So when you do a loop, actually one sixteenth is just a wee bit, and uh, you sort of it was, it was more like a pressure transducer that senses pressure and it would just go around and do a loop. That was stunning, that was amazing. And the fact that it was on the right side, we had actually a elbow rest, like you have in the car door, uh, you know, to rest your arm. So you could just rest your arm over there. And the first time we flew, we thought this was the most natural thing. And we wondered why the stick was ever placed in the center. Mm-hmm. In the conventional mechanical or hydromechanical uh, controls, why wasn't it here? So it was very natural for us. Mm-hmm. And then the bubble canopy on the Chinese fighters, you could just see the neck. From outside, you could just see the neck of the pilot, neck and above. Here, if you had the seat up, an outsider on the ground could actually see part of your leg also. If you had the thighs <laughs> up, because your feet were also about seven or eight inches higher than normal. They weren't on the floor. The other paddles were actually higher. So combined with 30 degrees recline, and, uh, side stick and a bubble canopy and of course an unstable aircraft as you know it was unstable mm-hmm. uh, the center of gravity uh, in all aircraft is ahead of the center of pressure here it was behind so that was quite something and as we all know uh, controllable only with the help of computers flight control computers uh, otherwise of course it can't fly mm-hmm. and uh, that was something again unique four of them four computers so there's no question of failure and if it did you had this uh, hydrazine gas-fired generator which would kick up. Hydrazine gas uh, is like TNT. It explodes, but it's a controlled explosion. They could use TNT also to fire up the generator, but it will blow up. This gas is safe enough. It, it sort of uh, get, comes in contact with the air, and it's a mini blast in a controlled in a, in a tight space, and it spins up the impellers of the generator, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it has, I think, uh, enough gas to get you back within about 15 minutes, 10 or 15, 12 minutes of flight, and you can just uh, rush back to a safe, uh, close by runway. But never happened. We had false failures, false uh, uh, firing up of the hydrazine without any problem with the flight control. That's a maintenance issue with the hydrazine uh, container. Otherwise, no flight control. We've never had, not in the Pakistan neighbors, none that I know of. Uh, in any other Air Force, the four flight controls, the four computers that failed, no such thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first 
I was there in the squadron, the first crash that took place uh, on the F-16, I wonder if you know about it. Uh, two of my coursemates, they were flying in the dual-seater in the F-16. Mm-hmm. And it was a night mission. And as they rolled for takeoff, something hit the aircraft with a thud and mixed. The aircraft was on fire, huge flames. And they both had to punch out. Mm-hmm. And we discovered that these were wild boar that had struck the aircraft nose wheel and sheared off the nose wheel. The nose went down. When the nose went down, the drop tanks also started to graze the runway. Yeah. And uh, they turned red hot in no time and uh, they blew up. And mm-hmm. the pilot had to eject. First loss. And uh, later, uh, we had to build a wall around the whole base. And earlier, there had been some suggestions that let's build a wall. We have uh, wild dogs and occasionally wild boars mm-hmm. on the runway, which would be dangerous. And they said, we don't have enough money. Mm-hmm. And when we lost the F-16, in one month, a wall, I think, uh, 11 kilometers length, wall about six, seven feet high, all around the base was built within one month. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, hard way, uh, learned a lesson uh, the hard way in the F-16. Yeah. Uh, now, comparing, like I told you, comparing uh, the F-16 with conventional fighters, everything was different, just about everything. Mm-hmm. So, uh, not that we had to unlearn anything, but uh, we had to sort of learn new things which had not been seen on any other fighter mm-hmm. uh, that way. And since we were amongst the early lot at that time, 85, 86, 87, these were the early years, not just in Pakistan Air Force. In fact, the American Air Force got them in, I think, 79 and 80. Mm-hmm. In fact, their squadrons were also still equipping with the F-16s like we were. Mm-hmm. So it was very modern for its uh, time. Mm-hmm. Uh, extremely safe aircraft. Other than, you know, these uh, silly accidents, mm-hmm. the few that we've had were mostly pilot factors, one or two, one disorientation, one bird hit, things like that, but nothing to do with the aircraft. Yeah. Extremely uh, reliable system, the engine itself. Mm-hmm. So no issue with that. In fact, design-wise, I think it's one of the best designed aircraft in the world. I, I'd say that uh, if I'd flown the Mirage 2000, no, if I'd flown the F-18, <laughs> these are modern. Of course, they're all viceless. Very good aircraft, but then you start to have some kind of attachment with the fighter that you've flown. So uh, I, of course, love it. And I got a chance to fly uh, last year. After last I flew was in 1989, 30, 30 years ago, exactly 30 years ago. And one day, the chief of staff, uh, he called me directly. He was one of my students at the academy. Mm-hmm. And he said, sir, uh, would you like to fly? I thought he was, you know, he wanted me for some conference at the air headquarters and he was sending a special aircraft for me. Uh, I said, yeah, okay, uh, when, where? He says, get your G-suit and helmet ready, <laughs> you're flying F-16. I said, okay, F-16 after 30 years was quite something, but uh, this uh, aircraft that I flew was the midlife upgrade uh, mm-hmm. F-16. Uh, the ones that we've flown were just uh, basic uh, F-16 A's and B's in the Upgrades are taking place in, I think, 2011-12 time frame. Mm-hmm. So uh, here, the capabilities were, uh, I, I really can't sort of explain it because I haven't uh, read much about it. We had the sniper pod, we had the BVR capability, everything was data linked, uh, new uh, cockpit, new instruments and so on. So the capabilities immensely increased. I recall that the buttons on the stick and throttle uh, each button had one or two functions adding up to about six or seven functions on the stick and six or seven functions on the throttle. Now there's something like uh, 
20 odd on the throttle and 20 odd on the stick. And, uh, you know, at the end of the mission, I thought it was more like uh, a video game. You had to be savvy in a video game. And the psychomotor skills uh, now are the prime thing, uh, especially with the BVR capability mm-hmm. and with the data link where you can be linked up. I mean, uh, an AVAX aircraft can pass its information down to you, downlink to you through data link. You can uplink your info, your radar info, or whatever info, or one of the sensors to the uh, radar flying up, or the ground radar, or the ground radar can pass it on to you. And the most impressive, you can pass it on to your formation members. Yeah. Uh, you locked up your formation members, they have got the radars to stand by. So you can just lock up and pass it on as you do on your mobile phone to your number two. So number two just gets a beep and it looks at the radar scope and says, ah, Somebody's locked up for me, and all he has to do is just, you know, get his bearings right and press the uh, missile release button. So the capabilities are immense. So that's a major change. So by the skin, it's F-16, but from inside, everything is really changed. New radar, new uh, sensors, all uh, fused mm-hmm. centrally, controlled by a better, more powerful fire control computer. The capabilities of the same F-16 are immense and uh, as you must be knowing, the uh, life, structural life was something like 8,000 hours initially. Mm-hmm. And after the midlife upgrade, it's 16,000 hours. So double, yeah. 16,000 hours take, I think, uh, till the end of the, this century uh, to complete. Yeah. We've had uh, Mirages flying for 60 years, uh, 50, 50, 53 years now, uh, with a life of 5,000 hours only. So if mm-hmm. it was 16,000 uh, ours, I think we'd be stepping into the next century. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So it's, going to be around, so it's going to be around for some time. Yeah. And was it nice having that extra power, especially in reheat coming from the Mirage? Yeah, yeah, of course, yes. Uh, 9Gs or something, and 9Gs could be sustained by PAL, mm-hmm. and it had immense power, plus to weight one is to one. Mm-hmm. And uh, as in some experience, uh, you know, the in thing, the hot thing was to do a very steep takeoff, a rocket takeoff, we used to call it, uh, which was uh, not possible in another aircraft. And uh, in, in terms of combat, at virtually all altitudes, you could sustain your speed, which uh, wasn't possible in conventional fighters, except at very low level, perhaps, yes, but not uh, higher uh, altitudes. Mm-hmm. The F-16 could do that. Mm-hmm. Sustaining speed was no problem. Uh, sustaining 9Gs, of course, the limit was the pilot, not the aircraft. Uh, you know, able to sustain 9Gs. Although later fighters, of course, after the F-16, there were many others which have the capability of 9Gs now. Mm-hmm. But in the 80s, it was something uh, to be able to pull that. It's still an impressive aircraft to this day. I mean, it's still, I think there's a lot of nations still ordering to this day. You know, the advance, I think, um, is it maybe the Saudis, are they ordered an F-16, the next ones, or Oman or something? Or they're ordering like really oh. advanced F-16s? Oman has them, and uh, UAE has them. UAE, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, were it for, uh, not for the stealth capability, which it lacks, mm-hmm. uh, it would have been stealth fighter for, for many more years to come. But I think it's the end of the life for the F-16, at least in Western countries. Yeah, the F-35 Sorry. coming in, yeah. But uh, how many hours did you get on the F-16, and how many years did you actually fly it? I flew it for three years, and uh, about... 500 hours or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, on so the quite F-16. a bit at a time. Quite a bit. The average is, for me, 
uh, I said I'm a sort of a unique case just by chance, by sheer chance, average about 500 hours on, on fighters, each type of fighter. There are people in the Air Force who've flown just the Mirage uh, 5 or the F-6. There are people, one of my course mates, he's got about 2,000 hours on the Mirage alone. Wow. Yeah. Mirage 5, yes. And there are people who, who've got a similar number of hours on the uh, F-6. They were not able to jump on. Typically, what happens is that you jump on after about five, six, seven hundred hours, uh, move on to the next more modern fighter, and so on. Mm-hmm. But sometimes the strains of uh, availability of instructors, they're not enough, so you just stay on because you have more experience. So they want you to stay on in an operational commanding unit as an instructor, and so on. So I was just uh, a lucky one who happened to fly these number of fighters, the Chinese and the French and the uh, Katri, oh, the French, of course, in Qatar, and uh, so um, yeah, I think I, I think I would prefer to fly more types and get less hours to just have that experience. Yeah, and then uh, then after the F sixteen, uh, what happened? Then I moved on to went to Qatar and then came back and commanded a Mirage squadron. Mm-hmm. My own squadron, the one that I flew in earlier, I got to command that, the Maritime Attack Squadron. And from there, I moved, I'm talking about the flying part. Yeah. Uh, did a couple of uh, desk jobs and then moved as the OCU, the wing of the tactical fighter wing, mm-hmm. where on the base we had uh, the Mirages and the uh, F-7, the MiG-21. Yes, because that's what I want to talk about now, because that is a very unique aircraft. It's one of my favorite aircraft, actually. So, yeah, tell us your story, how you became involved with the F-7. So, uh, so I wanted to fly because I had enough uh, experience on the, nothing new on the Mirage. I, I'd done all. Uh, so I wanted to fly the F-7. When I did my cockpit time in my ground school, didn't take, you know, seniors uh, just finish off in a couple of days, just need to know the checks and procedures. And I found it is a very simple aircraft uh, to the extent that, you know, a senior officer, OC wing or a base commander, he's usually busy with his staff work. And from the desk, he has to move to the aircraft and, you know, get his bearings right and all his checks and procedures. And I thought the safest way after a couple of sorties, the safest thing for me was just to make sure all switches are outboard. Mm-hmm. So you won't be missing anything. If nothing is required, no problem. Nothing will get damaged. So uh, the checklist was very simple. The checks that you had to do on the ground were extremely, you know, there were just very few. And since it was a tailed aircraft, a tailed delta, so none of those vices of the Mirages, mm-hmm. losing speed in turns, very high speeds on takeoff and landing, th- those weren't there. And secondly, it was very robust. Uh, very, by the looks of it, looks delicate, especially the F-13, the very first uh, that we had. The RF-7 is actually the very first MiG-21 F-13, mm-hmm. uh, the first model with some modifications. And those modifications basically are that it had a, a fire control radar. We had our own RIFO uh, fire control radar and a hardback weapon aiming computer and a head-up display and a canopy which wasn't forward opening, uh, which was uh, rear opening. Yeah. And plus just relocation of switches here and there. So, but essentially, it remained uh, the basic F-13, mm-hmm. the original. And like I said, it was 
somewhat in the category of the Emirat F1 in so far as the flying ability is concerned, the flying capability is concerned. Okay. Vice-Lips, no issues of, uh, it was fast, faster uh, than that aircraft on takeoff and landing, but not as much as the Mirage and didn't have any adverse slow speed characteristics. It won't go into, it, it won't just flick into a spin like the F-60 just do. Right. It was all uh, control. And the nearly 100 hours that I have on the F-7, because as OC wing, I just stayed on for one year. Right. Um, I didn't have any emergency, no problem, nothing to write home about. As far as, you know, uh, getting into a situation is concerned, nothing of the sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, really enjoyed my flying and I used to call it the staff officer's aircraft because there were no worries. For, if you had to fly the Mirage uh, as the uh, OC wing or the base commander, which I was later on, you had to sort of open your book in the morning and read something about the checks and emergencies. For the F-7, uh, you're quite sure that nothing would go wrong and luckily it didn't. So it was quite a robust aircraft, I heard, uh, from many people I've talked to about. Yeah. Extremely robust, very simple. And for the capability, for the close combat uh, capability, it had excellent. Of course, it was a BVR aircraft, but linked up with uh, Lima, the 9L. Uh, a good dogfighter. Pretty high on uh, thrust weight ratio, nearly about 0.9, uh, which, is, which is actually good. Yeah, 0.88, actually, to be very mm-hmm. precise. Mm-hmm. Low on fuel, yes, point defense interceptor, but if you're deploying it for the role uh, that is, you know, just defensive for airbase or defensive for VP, a vulnerable point, uh, does a job very well. And go after the battlefield, not deep strikes, but just go after the battlefield and deliver weapons like bombs, uh, it could do uh, very well. Yeah. So uh, for the money, I think it was wonderful. Uh, great value for money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always had a, I don't know why this is, and maybe you can tell me, but obviously Western um, aircraft, their cockpits are usually black, but in the Russians, they're always light blue. Was that the case with your uh, F-7? No. 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 These are grey. Oh, okay. Okay, because everyone I've seen, they're like like really pale blue. Um, We went to Poland for a visit, and I recall... Uh, this was a biomedical center, aeromedical center mm-hmm. in, in Warsaw, where they briefed us in this question that you asked. We asked some of their uh, doctors who were doing research on aeromedicine, that why do you have uh, cockpits and some other uh, stuff which is uh, green, bluish green. Mm-hmm. And they said that's soothing for the eyes. That's what they said. Okay. That, uh, yeah, it, um, you know, mentally a pilot tunes up to that environment quicker and he feels more comfortable. It's less stressful. I don't know how, but they said <laughs> that it's less stressful. We've done a lot of research on that and it works. But I haven't seen anything of that sort in Chinese aircraft or certainly not uh, the Western aircraft. I always loved the afterburner plume on the um, the MiG-21. It just looks great on takeoff. Well, it looks great on every aircraft, every fighter. I mean, there's loads of thrust and it's a long plume. Mm-hmm. But perhaps because the size is small, the F-7 size is small, and the, the, the exhausters, the afterburner exhausters, uh, rather long as long as the aircraft itself. So it does look impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Eccentric ring. Yeah, blue and blue and red and yellow and on all colors shading off. Another thing that I enjoyed uh, on all fighters was to take them to the limits, and 
How I did that was after 200 hours, it's a regulation 200 hours on type when you're allowed to do the function check flight or the air test. And I had 200 hours on virtually all, all types of fight, more than 200 hours on all types of fighters. And mostly uh, when you take an aircraft up for an air test, what you do is you're supposed to, uh, you know, test the whole envelope. Even if it's an engine change or it's this or that, you have to theoretically. But then there's not enough fuel to stay up in the air for that long and check each and everything. So I thought uh, if it's an engine change, do the engine checks and then just get to the airframe thing and take it to the limits, speed limits, G limits. And for me, the speed limits used to be uh, low level. Uh, if it was 700 knots, 750 knots in the Mirage, was a Mark 1.15. On wow. Uh, we used to fly over the sea, and I've done Mark 2.1 a number of times in the Mirage. Uh, it's a very good, despite being underpowered aerodynamically for high speed, it's a perfect design. If only it had a more powerful engine, which of course came later as the Mirage uh, 2000. But uh, this was no problem uh, taking it up to Mark 2, certainly in colder, colder weather. In uh, hotter months where the temperatures go up as high as about 45 degrees, it would take a while, mm -hmm. but uh, in winter months, no problem. And I did that in the F-16, Mark II, uh, and a little less than Mark II, actually. I have to claim because otherwise they'd, you know, get after me. How dare you say that the Mirage uh, F-16 can't do Mark II? It does. Uh, and the F-7 I tried, it could, except for the fact that it doesn't have enough fuel. I went up right. to Mark 1.8, mm -hmm. and... Now, if I had started to turn back, I would have lost uh, my speed. So there was no, no possibility of doing Mark II, which eventually I did by going from one base to the other. When wow. my ferry flight, I just had to go Mark II, and uh, I was clocking something like 1,200 knots, and the radar on the ground calls me and says, uh, Sir, uh, you know, I repeated my call sign. Are you the same guy? Your IFF code, is that the same? I said, yes, I'm you know, squawking so-and-so mode, and so-and-so code. And he says, uh, sir, check your speed. I said, anything wrong? And he comes up with uh, a call. He says, I think it's anomalous propagation. In winter months, you have anomalous propagation where the waves, because of uh, cold weather, uh, they just sort of bounce up and down like in the ionosphere and uh, they give false returns. So he said, maybe I'm getting wrong speed. I said, how much are you getting? He says, sir, 12 knots, but it can't be. No, I said, it is. <laughs> it is 12 knots. He said, uh, sir, 12 knots, yes. Never seen a blip going 12 knots. I said, well, once you can see that. And so from there, I landed at the base, which was about 130 miles, 140 miles from my home base and landed on the other side. So I've done Mark II on all these uh, fighters also. Wow, that must have been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun. But it uh, sounds like you've had a great career, Kaiser. But uh, we've got a question from some of our patrons, if you don't mind answering them for us. Yeah, sure. So this is from Alexander Vater Remick. Uh, being somebody who was part of... Uh, part of the Air Force, how are you able to keep an unbiased view on the military history of your country as shown in your books? Well, 
you said we don't uh, discuss political issues, but then, of course, uh, how do you reckon the performance of Air Force or the capability of Air Force? By mm -hmm. war, if you had the opportunity of going to war, uh, you just look at the stats, statistics, and uh, determine what kind of Air Force you are. I won't get into all those details because they can kick, kick up a storm. But the fact, for one thing, uh, I think about 17 or 18 countries asked, the Middle East countries, mostly in some in Africa, asked for Pakistan Air Force instructors. And that we've been doing since 1967, the Arab-Israeli war. We've had instructors in Algeria, Syria, Iraq, Iran, uh, Zimbabwe, Egypt, Jordan, and a couple of countries I forget offhand. Uh, quite obviously because uh, they must have seen something good, something, some capabilities with the Pakistan Air Force, which, mm -hmm. uh, of course, that's one indicator. Second indicator of our performance, I would uh, say that our safety record, uh, by way of you know how many accidents per 10,000 hours or 100,000 hours, by whichever way you reckon, it's been excellent. Uh, the tactical air force, the American tactical air force, minus the transport, because you know when you uh, bring in the transports, everything becomes so much more safer. But if we just look at the fighter record of the American air force, ours isn't too bad. We've had some years, uh, two or three years, where we had zero accidents for the whole year. Mm -hmm. that, that's quite an achievement. Otherwise, you know, it's in decimals. And once upon a time, about 50, 60 years ago, it used to be something like uh, uh, 40, 40 accidents per year, 40 major accidents per year. From there, we dropped down over the years to less than one. And uh, this year has been great. Last year was uh, also pretty good. So that's a second indicator of uh, the performance. And like I said, in wars we've done, considering that you know the adversary has been bigger, in, been, been bigger in size, we stood up. In 1965, the performance was uh, sterling uh, for whatever reason. There were you know, leadership failures on the other side, I think, and uh, our capability of pilots was excellent, I think, uh, trained in America. Uh, the others uh, weren't, or they were, I think they had Russian tactics and so on. Uh, we were following Western tactics. And then again, in uh, 1971, though we lost East Pakistan, that was a major loss, of course. We can't uh, sort of make any, we can't brag around that the Air Force did well. Overall, of course, it was a loss for us. The country succeeded, it sort of broke up. But uh, given the circumstances, the PF was able to, in fact, my book uh, is about the 1971 war that I had published uh, last year. That's being republished by Helion uh, UK, the publishers, they're redoing the whole thing. Uh, the title of the book is In the Ring and on Its Feet. And that title I took from the official Indian history where the Indian historian, at the conclusion uh, of his uh, you know, three-volume history of the uh, 1971 war, says that at the end of the war, the Pakistan Air Force was in the ring and on its feet. So it was a sort of a tie. So, um, and, and of course, if you want me to touch on the 27th thing, 27th February thing, which has been very controversial, I know. I don't uh, want to get into point scoring, mm -hmm. but we were able to, given the circumstances, we were surprised, uh, you know, the other side struck us and we were able to strike back within 30 hours. And uh, uh, in, in the bargain, we uh, at least shot down one aircraft and perhaps damaged the other one. Mm -hmm. Something happened to the other two also. So that's not a small thing for a, for a Air Force, which is uh, resource-constrained, which is smaller in size. I think uh, we have been doing well. So that's my answer to that question the gentleman yeah. asked from... Uh, yeah. 
So the second question from Alexander Vata is, are you still flying? And if so, what type? No, I'm not flying. Not flying, no. Uh, no, I'm not flying. Uh, I didn't want to fly commercial because I never had interest in commercial after retirement. I took up, uh, you know, in the morning, you just asked me that you'd like to know what am I doing now after retirement. After retirement, I took up some hobbies. Uh, these are kiddish hobbies, but I love them. I enjoy them. These include uh, expedition cycling. Uh, every year, I do 500 kilometers expedition, uh, self-contained with a tent on my wheels, with a bedroom on my wheels, so to speak, <laughs> on a cycle, bicycle, I'm talking about on a motorbike. And um, uh, kitchen on wheels, uh, pharmacy on wheels, a workshop on wheels, my sleeping bag and tent, just the two of us. And each year we do a 500 uh, kilometer uh, expedition up in the northern areas where we've gone up to 16,000 feet without oxygen on cycles to the northernmost uh, latitude of Pakistan, to Siachen Glacier, I wonder if you've heard of it. And uh, been uh, doing a solo trip also to a faraway place in the northern areas. And the topping on the cake was uh, 2015. Uh, both of us, we did a 1,000-kilometer cycling trip from Gilgit in the northern Pakistan to China. Wow. Potan is a place in Xinjiang province. Uh, so that's been a huge challenge for us, and we do it every year. Next year, I'm flying from Chitral to the northern Afghanistan, Afghanistan-Pakistan border, again on a cycle. Let's see if I can pull it off. Wow, that's a that, great achievement. Then I uh, qualified as a paddy scuba diver uh, two years ago, and I'm waiting for my uh, advanced course. I had a bit of a problem with my eardrum. I uh, couldn't go as deep as they want us to in the advanced course, which is 100 feet. So now I'm okay, so perhaps I'll attempt that uh, coming season. And now into writing. Uh, my first book was Great Air Battles of Pakistan Air Force, and the second one was about the 1971 war. And my third and fourth books will be about my adventures and travels on my bike in Pakistan and abroad. Uh, so that sort of keeps me busy. And that also keeps me away from the cockpit of a commercial liner. I just uh, thoroughly enjoyed my fighter flying. So uh, anybody willing to give me a joyride in a fighter, I'm game for it. But uh, no, no flying, really. You're like a real-life action man. <laughs> well, so far so good. <laughs> yeah. And one last question from our patrons, uh, Kaiser. Um, this is from Joe Kunzler. How hard was it to learn to fly the F-16? Uh, it wasn't hard at all. Just not uh, hard. If you go by phases, the basic flying is very, very simple. The flight control computer limits uh, your departures from or departures into dangerous regimes. It, it just doesn't let the aircraft go into a stall or a spin. It's not possible unless you override the control and you want to purposely go for a uh, spin like uh, the test, test pilots mm -hmm. do. Otherwise, you can't. So that's, that makes things a lot more easy. And then uh, the speeds are very, very slow. It's in fact, like I told you, it's as nearly as slow as, like the F1, as slow mm -hmm. as the T-37. Uh, very simple to take off and land. There's no drag shoot. It just stops very easily. So from that point of view, it wasn't uh, difficult. Uh, in our time, we didn't have a simulator for the radar. So we had to learn everything by going up in the air and learning the intercepts and all. Mm -hmm. Now they have simulators. So things are that much more easier. Uh, 
they would have been easier except for the fact that uh, after the midlife midlife upgrade uh, the aircraft can do a lot more than what we could 30 years ago mm-hmm. so it's a much more capable aircraft and capability goes with more proficiency required and that requires more time so people are spending more time in uh, the squadrons late backups but you know it's just a job to be done uh, so from that point of view the preparation for a mission that is more time consuming I'd, I'd say but uh, once you're well prepared going up in the air and performing what you did because you've already done enough simulator so mm-hmm. simulator makes things easier for you uh, but uh, you know more more time you spend more time in the simulator and mission preparation unlike mm-hmm. our days where you just you know hop onto aircraft with much lesser preparation mm-hmm. so all in all it is a very easy aircraft to fly nothing dangerous about it mm-hmm. nothing worrisome about it like you know there were times when you were worried about flying yes 6 against a flight commander who was who had a thousand hours you know <laughs> that he'd whip you up in the air uh, because he had more experience he could take an aircraft to zero speed uh, and you couldn't and those were dangerous things on the f16 such things uh, don't really matter they, they're not uh, it's, it's it's not a dangerous aircraft in any way yeah So just a few questions from myself to wrap up the interview Kaiser. Um yeah. this could be a difficult one for yourself. What was the favorite aircraft you have flown? Well, I'll be very frank. Uh when we flew the F16, it was a costly aircraft. It was uh very new technology. So there was over supervision. Mm-hmm. Which the youngsters never enjoyed. we could get away with similar mistakes uh in on the mirages or the f6s and it was just between the flight commander the squadron commander and it was a in-house affair he just sort of uh, rapped on the knuckles don't do it again kind of thing here in the f16 a mistake would go right up to air headquarters somehow it got transferred to air headquarters why did this happen why did the horn blow you know at that attitude why did you get to that attitude and so on and so forth Uh, so deep and of course i'm talking about the times when we had this afghan thing going on the russians were intruding and we were flying uh, missions against them mm-hmm. so they were closely monitored uh, so you weren't so comfortable because every now and then you'd be questioned in a way it was good because we were the sort of pioneers and we had to set the pace and uh, since we were being checked every now and then so what we passed on to our juniors was uh, uh i'd say something more professional which mm-hmm. we weren't doing and uh, we were having a sort of a you know kick the tire like the fire kind of thing on uh, conventional aircraft here we couldn't do that mm-hmm. so in a way it was good professionally but purely from an enjoyment point of view the kind of thing is you saying uh, which squadron did you enjoy in uh, yes this conventional fighters because they were less demanding mm-hmm. they were less demanding in the sense that their capabilities the things that you could do with them were limited mm-hmm. uh, here at 16 you had a lot more to do you had a lot more to learn and of course you were being supervised your performance was under check constantly so um, you know that that fun that we were used to uh, wasn't there in a certain way if you can understand what i'm trying yeah, to put yeah. across mm-hmm. yeah and finally where can we find your books online now they are available online what is happening is the publisher here uh he is not doing enough and people just buy bulk 
they buy 100 books and put them up. Actually, it costs less than about five pounds. Mm-hmm. But on the internet, on Amazon, you'll find it for 25 pounds, something like that. Right. So that's not the, the, the costly. But Helion is going to publish the same book uh, next April. In fact, okay. you heard of Tom Cooper? Mm-hmm. Tom Cooper? Yeah. Yep. He and me are now these days uh, working on some uh, colored aircraft profiles and maps for the book. It's a redo of the book. Uh, they, they're professional in this field and they have a cartographic section. Uh, I'm quite impressed uh, with everything that's going on. So that should be out uh, next year. Brilliant. Well, we'll also we'll we'll keep our viewers in for, um, linked up with that once it comes out, uh, and I'll keep in contact with you. But uh, I just want to thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing a bit of your story. It's been brilliant to hear about your flying career. So thank you very much, Kaiser. Thank you, Mike. Really enjoyed. Thank you.